0: Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Welcome to season three, episode 45, also known as our final regular episode of the third season. I want to thank you guys so much for listening, sharing, and supporting this podcast. 2022 was our biggest year yet. I am completely humbled and honored by your enthusiasm for the show. And especially, I want to give a huge shout out to not only my patreon subscribers who help fund my research and support the podcast so i can keep doing what i'm doing but especially my guests who are so generous with their time and knowledge, and I have the best time ever talking to them about the movies they love and learning from them. And I've really cherished this year's conversations and getting to know so many new people that I can't wait to bring back in season four. I know we'd announced other episodes for the season. We got a little ambitious with our scheduling of some people, had their availabilities change on us. And I never want to overwhelm anyone. And as we started to get closer and closer to December and award season and festival season, it just seemed like this was probably the right time to end the podcast for this year and give me a break and a chance to recharge my batteries. We will be back with a bonus episode of the podcast in December with some of your favorite guests. It's another physical media episode to celebrate some of the great releases that have hit shelves recently and arrived at my front door. I'm going to be talking to friends very informally. It's kind of a hangout episode and a thank you for listening. Hopefully it'll make you laugh and entertain you. And it'll just be a very free-flowing conversation, so you can look for that. It'll be dropping first on our Patreon as a huge thank you again for your loyalty and support. And then it will be released to everyone as we move into the new year. The podcast for Season 4 will likely begin at the start of February. I always say likely because things change. People get busy, new things arise. So I'm not going to promise that X day is when you will get the first episode, but keep subscribing and the new episodes will show up in your feed as soon as they are ready. You can also follow us on social media at Watch with Jen on Twitter and also at Film Intuition on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd. Well, without further ado, let's jump into our final conversation and our final regular season episode with Blake Howard. Today, I'm so thrilled and very proud to welcome back one of my dearest pals and the hardest working man in pod business, Mr. Blake Howard, the brains behind the stellar One Heat Minute Productions that launched with an in-depth minute-by-minute investigation and appreciation of Michael Mann's Heat He's released numerous pods since, including All the President's Minutes, Josie and the Podcats, Zodiac Chronicle, and also produced the excellent Increment Vice, hosted by our good friend and film essayist, Travis Woods. With several more releasing now, like Miami Nice, some hilarious original stuff like Rum and Rant on his Patreon, Too Much Movie with our wonderful pal Rob Belushi and Chris Candy, plus essays on heist films at Vague Visages, his busy family life with his lovely wife Sam and two young children, and a new career as a teacher. Blake Howard is one of the busiest and most talented people I know, and also one of the nicest. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Blake. How are you doing? And how is winter treating you?
1: Well, winter is actually Australian summer. So we're like, we are gearing up for some actual heat, Jen, which is such a relief. I actually said to my wife, Sam, who you know, like she usually buys like uh, me like summer gifts of like shorts and shirts and in australia we've had nothing but like thanks to climate change um and covid <laughs> we've had like n- freezing cold weather like unseasonally cold weather it's been bucketing down with rain you've never been able to get you know sun's out guns out and i'm like literally don't please don't buy me any more shorts because there's like six pairs of shorts that i haven't even worn in two years so uh-huh. i'm ve- summer is good my my legs are exposed as I talk to you. It's very exciting. Very um, so, exciting. Do
0: we so, have ink on the legs? You know, I don't know. No, I know all no the ink other on the ink. legs. Okay. No,
1: inc- no ink on the legs. No, not, not yet. yet. Not yet. Okay. But you know, if in all this shorts weather, I might be inspired. But um, so there no, no ink on the legs as yet. Um, we'll have to think of uh some cool uh larger pieces if I ever decide to get the ink on the legs. But no, summer is great. I'm uh like like you. You know, we are busy podcasters um, and for folks, no one really better than you know this, is that I kind of like to give myself a rod for my own back as far as like producing what I need to get out there. And so yeah. I've, I've had an insane uh, production time at the moment, just developing things. And, and I'm really excited that the next few months are like all the things that I've been working on now for what feels like a bunch of months and even a year with some things. It's like they're all now finally coming to fruition. It's really nice.
0: Very exciting. Yeah. Off air, I was talking to Blake about both of our desire to uh, take a break here coming up. He's going to be like finishing his own producing schedule by like mid-December. I'm hoping to have early December, except for like one bonus episode coming out for my patrons on physical media, which Blake will be on. But yes. other than that, I am just going to be chilling writing for uh december january maybe doing a little traveling so yeah we're going to get uh some time to recharge blake it'll be nice yeah.
1: get inspired for the um, insane amount of work we've built yeah. for ourselves for next year's project
0: i know <laughs> and for midnight run through yeah that's that's what i'm talking that's yeah. what i'm talking
1: about midnight run through got to have all that energy and fire for midnight run through so no lots yes. of cool stuff coming in um for people who are listening to one eight minute productions, it will seem like it's a seamless continuous stream of content, but just know that right now I'm in the trenches as I talk to Jen of like building multiple shows that are hopefully going to go basically all the way through to the beginning of February. So I'm excited to actually have a nice break with the fam and, and enjoy some summer sun and yeah, recharge and, not have movies as work for a little bit, which is going to be super great. And then just enjoy and read all of our friends' books that are coming out for next year. I know, know. I'm so so excited. That's exciting.
0: Yes, yes, definitely. Well, I know the reason we're here today is to celebrate a director we both love. Actually, Mm. I was thinking about it in October and I kind of hit you up because I knew you were going to be working on your show, Podcaster and Commander, uh, for the director peter weir and i was just like if i'm doing an episode on peter weir it's got to be with blake so talk to me about your love of peter weir do you remember was it always there did you have a favorite as a young man um
1: probably the first one i was actually trying to think about this because i know that we talk about it on your show i think the first peter weir that really had a massive rotation. This was thanks to my my dad, was uh Witness. Yes, so Harrison Ford was Harrison Ford was a huge entity in our house. I mean we were a Star Wars house, we Indiana Jones house. So you know it's it's almost impossible to be like, I mean, of course Harrison Ford was in our lives. Um but you know it, I remember Witness being on all the time. Like we had a Betamax player. I'm sure we we had it taped um, probably off of Australian television with like bad at ad, like ads being cut out or ads yes. in it. um, and witness got a lot of rotation. And so for me, without even having being young at the t- really young at the time that that was out, I didn't really have much of a concept of what it was. But then, as I started to become aware of it, like it was something that my dad would revisit. You know, we as kids are just, you know, melting the Betamax with, you know, video recordings of Rocky and Indiana Jones and Star Wars and like all the kids' movies. But Bert Witness was something that we had. And so I remember like I remember vividly later, kind of like 20s, going back and watching it and just being like it was so familiar yet so abstract in my memory that it had an imprint on me, but I I didn't fully register what that was. So that was kind of there. And then, you know, in Australia, we had, you know, while we talk about New Hollywood, Australia had this incredible burst of independent cinema in the 70s. We didn't really have a haze code in Australia, so we were a little bit more freewheeling with with content on television, but it was like the 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 presence of television and especially like American cultural imperialism that sort of came in with television, um, we had to kind of develop our own content. And so the voices of Australia's new talent became in cinema. And and yeah. so many things were funded, so many exciting films that were talking about specifically Australian or politically engaged topics all came out. And then there was this glut of extreme talent, you know, the Bruce Beresfords, obviously George Dr. George Miller, and Peter Weir. And so then for my own kind of like film education, I started revisiting all of his films. But like Witness was the first one, probably, but it, it can't be understated how massive Gallipoli is in a national identity. Oh Australia. yes. So that that became a seminal film. And obviously Mel Gibson is in it, which was another huge thing, Mad Max Gallipoli. So it was this huge, you know. I can't even describe how massive a film it is. And it was like the yardstick forever for Australian war films because Gallipoli is so sort of fostered in Australia's own like narrativization of its narrative uh, of its national identity. And yes. so that was massive. And then just really, it's almost, you know, implicit then from then on that Peter Weir makes amazing films and yep. whether it's dead poets or whether it's something which is harder to acquire in Australia for some reason, fearless, um mm-hmm. just anytime Peter Weir made a movie, he kind of was like, I'm still here. You yeah. know, <laughs> he's like he's like, I, I I don't know about you other guys that are doing other things, but he he just he just impressed the living Dalits out of me. And so since in the run up to this project, Podcaster in Command about Master and Commander, the Far Side of the World, <clears throat> I just spent an inordinate amount of time revisiting all of his films. And I just uh I mean I, I love him so much. I think he's such a powerful filmmaker. I think that anything he puts his hand to, it feels so confident and accomplished and thoughtful, and it feels like it's the only way that it can be made. And I just find him—I don't know how to even describe it—in without like extreme hyperbole. But I just find him like a true movie-making genius. Like the choices he makes, I don't think mm-hmm. anyone would make. And then when he makes them, it, it's like how do, has no one ever done this before so i i'm just truly um in awe of him actually just going through his filmography i'm just like wow i can't believe i can't believe that we have this filmmaker here and because he's a reclusive guy and he sort of retired from filmmaking with the way back um in 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 the last decade he's just out he's not out there you know, doing podcasts like Tarantino or commenting on the state of Marvel cinema like Martin Scorsese, which like said one thing like three years ago, and now everyone won't get the fuck over it. Oh my um, god, I
0: know.
1: He, he's just living his life with his yeah. wife, who he's been married to since 1966, and they have a beautiful home, I believe, in Palm Beach. Um, which yeah, is yeah,
0: two kids, uh, home,
1: yep, two kids. Home and away country for international listeners. You know, beautiful yeah. part of the world. Um, and. So, yeah, he's just living his life and, you know, recently got honored um, with an honorary Oscar, completely well-deserved. And so, yeah, it's um, he's just a huge filmmaker for me, Jen, huge.
0: Yeah. One thing I've noticed over the years is people with really good taste are Peter Weir fans. I've kind of <laughs> noticed that over I'll take the it. years. Yes. <laughs> um, he was a favorite of film school professors repeatedly. He's also a favorite of a lot of our great character actors. Um, You hear again and again or every time I've mentioned Peter Weir online, I'm just amazed. Um, Usually it goes like mini viral and some of the people favoriting it are people that uh, we're all fans of. And it's always really, really cool to see that many people kind of get behind Peter Weir and what he does. I think my first uh, Weir film was dead poet society for sure yeah. my mom worked in a library and she would bring home videos every day and so we were pretty young but i do remember watching that and just being of course devastated by the turn of events and also um you know captivated by robin williams so I remember that slightly, and I think I saw it a couple more times in the 90s, but I haven't really seen it since I was sent to Blu-ray. I need to like revisit it uh, as well. <laughs> but uh, after that, uh, it had to be witnessed. We loved that film, just like you yeah. did, for whatever reason. And I know it was on TV, because I remember it was edited, and then years later, I'm like, oh, wow, like there's nudity <laughs> in this movie, or you know there's some language or stuff that happens in this film or violence that we didn't remember or know about because of uh, the editing from television but we watched it a lot (laughs) yeah i never
1: remembered seeing kelly mcgillis in her resplendent uh soaped up (laughs) lather glory until much older it definitely wasn't on the vhs tape that was kicking around our house that's for sure
0: no, I know, same thing, and uh, which I know was a huge event in a lot of our male friends' lives. Uh, yeah, Jed talks about it, Tom Burns. And, you know, it was it was a formative experience. Um, I also remember Fearless making a big impression because mm. I was one of those nerdy people who as kids you know you'd hear uh roger Ebert likes this movie or whatever and you would go to the video store and bring it home and uh fearless really did i remember i was a big fan of rosie perez and then all of a mm. sudden you saw a different side of her um she wasn't doing her shtick as uh it, she was kind of typecast or kept in the little box basically yeah. and she was finally able to show what she can do he's such a good director of actors he brings out different sides of people which i love but then uh, film school, the first college film class that I ever took at 16. Um, Jack Nist was our professor. He was one of those guys who had to like pause the movie every minute <laughs> to tell you something. And Sounds like also he <laughs> yeah, yeah, also though, like went to AFI or the American Film Institute, had to tell you that every couple of minutes, like, you know, back at AFI. And uh he would also use nicknames for people where you're like, well. You know bob redford and i and you know like all these people and you're like do you really know them uh but anyway
1: you need you needed a a a, a, a like a metal pan clanging on the ground sound effect for every time he name every drop time. like bang yes.
0: bang <laughs> every bang. nickname every afi that'd, but that'd i learned that coach you matter oh so, so much he showed us the year of living dangerously that was the first film we we watched And I mean, some of his analysis, I remember he's like, you know, Linda Hunt is being raised up uh, above them. And it's symbolic because right now they are in the right and they're in the wrong. Like some of his symbolism and stuff was going so overboard, but it was a really cool eye opening way to look at every frame of this movie. He also had theories on cigarette smoking and how it's used in your living dangerously is like it's for ambition or thinking every time they're smoking a cigarette and um so years later or then, it
1: could just be the 70s you know i know right it's like <laughs> the maybe 70s just
0: were smoking yeah maybe
1: everyone just smoked
0: Yeah. Didn't you learn that at AFI? No, I'm just kidding. uh, Didn't everyone
1: smoke at AFI? I'm sure they did. Yeah.
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah. Especially, um, you know, film people and arts people. So many of them smoke, of course. Yes. And uh, years later, uh, I took another great film course with Daryl Kopp here in Arizona. And his favorite film was Gallipoli. And so he recommended that he didn't show he showed us clips in class, but he didn't show us the whole thing. And I remember immediately going to seek it out for whatever reason I had missed it and became an instant fan. And actually when I announced we were doing this and showed like a photo of Gallipoli, he was the first person to respond. (laughs) Like, like, Oh my God, I love Peter Weir. I'm like, Yes, Daryl, I remember. So um yeah.
1: Shout out to you, Daryl. Bless you.
0: Yes yeah so uh he was very excited about this episode, and I just was stoked to do this and hear more, especially when it comes to Gallipoli, which we covered in our pandemic film club
1: mm-hmm. yeah, it's yes. um it's yeah i I can I, I when we get to our full breakdowns, I definitely can, but th- this is the other thing, Jen, we've mentioned you're living dangerously and dead yes. poets and and all these other things, but we haven't even really mentioned like the Truman Show which is a movie that is now so massive in people's memory and so yes. huge. It's just like there are just these, some of these we haven't talked about. The Mosquito Coast. There is so many films in. We haven't even talked about Picnic and Hanging Rock, which is the iconic film, and I think the quintessential wave
0: last wave. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's it's just there is just so much in Peter Weir's resume that, despite the fact that you know it's 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 a bit staggered and scattered out, and it is not as it doesn't have the breadth of some other filmmakers man pound for pound every one of these movies is has such a quality to it that it that makes it revisitable and that's why he's kind of insane you know a lot of people talk about who's the best Australian filmmaker and who's this and who's that and with the greatest respect it wouldn't be your show if i wasn't honest right so let's 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 start right there the Australian industry of awards is the most fucking blatantly corrupt thing I've ever seen in my life. You pay for your Australian Academy award. You pay for even your Australian podcasting award. It's their fucking shills. And I'm sorry, they know it. You can't kick me out. I live here. Um,
0: (laughs) That's Hollywood too, though. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Look, I I know that in Hollywood in Australia, it's even more blatant and the quality of what they say. And because part of ours is public funded when you're making films, which is really handy for emerging filmmakers, but also has the challenges as well. I mean, the quality of Australian filmmakers, I feel like people are so skewed on what is like a great Australian filmmaker and what is not a a great Mm -hmm. Australian filmmaker. And I feel like if you look at the George Millers and the early Beresford stuff and, and you look at Peter Weir, they're on another planet. Like if you looked at a contemporary Australian filmmaker who sometimes gets like critically loud as being great, I'm like, what crack are you smoking? What marketing <laughs> material are you reading? What invite to some multi bullshit drink up? Are, are you trying to keep your name on? Like it's, they're not good. They're just not. And um, so I, I, I feel like that's when I look at some of the like people who are like, oh, this is a great Australian filmmaker. I'm like, are they? Like, I mean, we, we, we used to have movies like The Last Wave and, and we used to have movies like, and I'm talking about Beresford now, like we used to have movies like Breaking Morant. We used oh to have God, like, and like Gallipoli and now we have Red Dog. Like if you even say that Red Dog <laughs> is in the same fucking planet as Peter Weir or Beresford or Dr. George, you're just smoking crack. And so I feel genuinely that's why I also... Savor it because there are some, you know, incredible contemporary filmmakers, some of which we've talked about together in private mm-hmm. and and on the show, and who I deeply admire and I think are aspirationally in that in that caliber. Like they're in that, in that class. They're always reaching for this Australian new wave, and uh, and I and and so they and they, and they have produced some of that stuff. But I'm just at, at that point where I'm now like, there is such a glut of just non talent and non ambition and non thoughtfulness. And, and I think also then we celebrate the mediocrity and I'm just like, just stop. What are you doing? Um, yeah, you better. I know. Um, and so that's my... <laughs> There's my Australian cinematic. I
0: know. Ultra. Well, you also like to talk about the themes that are constantly like, you know, how many junkies in love movies are you seeing in Australia? You're like, if I need to see another too movie many. about heroin addicts in love. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> too many. Too the many. answer is too many heroin addicts in love. Like the, <laughs> the, 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 you know, the ambition of those films to tell a spectrum of tales yeah. about the Australian experience. Um, you know, and, and I, I feel, I feel like there's, there's a way that Peter Weir does it and he always done it in a very sophisticated way, but I even recently watched again, if you haven't watched it for your fans, not a Peter Weir film, but it's a film by Stefan Elliot. It's called Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Oh, one of the greatest yes. Australian comedies of all time. Yeah. But in that film, it is absolutely stuffed with an incredible commentary about what is the hegemonic society that we live in? What are yep. the dominant thoughts and beliefs of our culture? And what are people who are on the outside and the fringes of the culture who don't fit with this paradigm of kind of, you know, ultimately what they're saying is predominantly white and racist and drunk Australia. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 you find these connections, you know, the most tolerant group of people that they meet on this crazy, gorgeously photographed journey through the center of Australia are indigenous people because they're outcasts and they're on the fringes of society in Australia and, and great commentary about sexuality and sexual politics and you know the fighting for your right to just exist and be yourself. I think it, you know, it does have its problems. Um as far as a very contentious and probably very racist scene about a a, a lady who is a male or a bride. But that being said, the film had ambition to be thoughtful for a lot of it with infusing thought with um you know political commentary with just comedy and great characters and and so, yeah, I, I don't think it happens as seamlessly. And that's what I think that's what, if you get to the weir of it all, that's what he can do. He can seamlessly infuse just great stories that have you wholly engaged with this really deep thoughtfulness that he's thought about every character beat, every choice, yeah. every filmmaking choice. Um, and just, I, I think it just completely, he's able to sort of keep characters very grounded, very real, very authentic, and then tell these massive hinge these huge stories, philosophical themes off of them. And he, he's a in my mind, he's singular in that. And I think that's why, despite my love of obviously George Millers and Beresfords and those guys that I talk about and you know even Ivan Sen, who we've talked about a lot. Yes, um, Ivan Sen uh, for sure. Great, great director of Goldstone, I just kind of look at that uh, and I say there isn't like he's the heavyweight champion of Australian filmmaking. Like there's no one better. Yeah. No. There's and 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 you should only be aiming for that. If you want to be the best, you've got to you've got to take weir off. And no one has even come close, as far as I'm concerned.
0: No, and you brought up so many points of what you loved about uh, Adventures of Priscilla Queen in the Desert, some of the thematic issues and questions that Weir has been fascinated by throughout his whole career about um, culture clash and society, what happens when you kind of stand outside the the norm of society and um, question its beliefs and there are these recurring questions also about masculinity and gender and roles and we should probably just launch right into gallipoli because it is such a a vital portrait of the national identity and uh what it means to be a man in australia and i will let you go ahead and tell us about its place there
1: australia has a really weird um constant revisionist national identity and because there's this massive problem is when you start out what your origin story is for the longest time it was an erasure of our First Nations people. Australian indigenous population Aboriginals are one of the oldest living cultures. Mm-hmm. sometimes people said you know they were 30 here for 30,000 years in a variety of like nations that spanned the entire expanse of Australia's huge island continent. And then it's like, oh, it's not 30,000 years, it's actually 40,000. Oh, maybe it's not 40,000, maybe it's actually <laughs> 60,000, maybe it's not 60,000, you know, maybe it's 110. So as we get more sophisticated with, you know, historical, you know, um, archaeology and, and, and sociology mm-hmm. and things like that, like people are discovering that actually maybe this living culture in ways that we didn't understand have been in for a really long time. And so white Australia, the dominant sort of colonial power came in and sort of started rewriting its identity. And what was fascinating about the 1970s is the, the really great artists of the time, particularly we were like kind of scrutinizing like like that directly, like going, Hey, just just to be clear, we've built these enclaves of Western life around the coastline immediately around the water. But there's this huge, you know, some some you know, sometimes it's sort of like um often known as like the red center right the heart Mm -hmm. of australia is this massive expanse that is so overwhelming and the nature is so you know has a fury (laughs) that if you don't know how to live there you're just completely ill-equipped and that's that's haunted australian cinema i think the best versions of it and so that's what i love about gallipoli is because this was our national myth like people mythologize this thing of like a you know Typified what Australian masculinity was and na- Australian national identity. If you don't know mm-hmm. what Gallipoli is, in World War I, the Brits trained Aussies and New Zealanders because uh, it comes with the ANZAC, so Australia yes. and New Zealand mm-hmm. Army Corps. Um, they trained us to invade Turkey because of their position in World War One, and we got stuck basically on a beach uh, because it was trench yeah. warfare. We didn't have sophisticated air support. So, you know, World War I was just like this – Brutal, you know, ongoing brutality of trench warfare. And so we arrived there. Yeah. To put it mildly. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and so we arrived there and we're fucking slaughtered. Like partially because of Australian, you know, and British Commonwealth forces just being completely inept at how to fight this new war and this new paradigm. But we went in there, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of Australians were slaughtered.
0: Mm-hmm. Along
1: with thousands of Turks too, it was a it was a bloodbath yeah. on both sides. It was absolutely hell, and uh, we the strange thing is that we kind of rewrote the better version of that. Is that we got in there and these damned, you know, British people who didn't know what to do with us um uh put us in this really awful position, and then we escaped like the, literally the entire garrisons and all the all of the army forces that were there snuck out of Gallipoli because we're getting bashed to death and people yep. were just dying left and right. And so that then strangely came back to Australia. as was like, okay, look, we snuck out of there. And even I remember being a kid, like that was the thing. It was like, we went there and these bad British
0: officers <laughs>
1: told us to go and fight. And then we, and we escaped and look at us, rah, rah, we escaped. But it is like, it is a colossal failure on every level. We went into mm-hmm. a war that because we were a part of the Commonwealth because we had to, we had no business about what it was about because ultimately world war one, unlike world war two was just about bickering, you know, uh, yeah. colonist forces in Europe. And so we went over there and fought now in East, like um, in the mid East against mm-hmm. uh, another colonial force who we had no clue about where a small yeah. country. So they were massively populated, better armed than us. And then we, retreated and that became the typical thing of our national identity and so what was fantastic about weir and i think even now there's this sort of weird hyper-nationalist revisionism of gallipoli the great thing about weir's film is that he actually directly addresses the real detachment that australian males had from Mm -hmm. the idea of what they were fighting for the real disconnect that was happening in the country because we were like you know you know it we were a teenager as far as like the actual development of Australia as its own independent sort of nation, even though we're still part of the Commonwealth and just talking about that entire conflict of having no clue of what war war was. Like we had been sort of spoon fed this idea that war has made men and you travel the world and you see lots of other countries and you meet beautiful women and whatever Mm -hmm. and you come back and you live gloriously. And I just love how damned, ugly this thing yep. is sur- surrounded by this oppressive environment that really doesn't you know that you can only just barely survive i love that archie um is one of the only people in his community that seems to have an indigenous friend um and then and and doesn't yes. treat people with that l- uh, lack of equality i love that indigenous people are pushed to the fringes and it's very honest about that part of australian yes, history it is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just truly think, um, you know, I was talking to Ben David uh, uh a, a, and um, even your our mutual friend Jim McQueenie about it for the upcoming project, podcasting and Commander, and I think it was sort of where we've sort of emphatically landed is that, like, Gallipoli is truly the most disturbing war film because it might be the only anti-war film, like the only truly unsavorable war film. <laughs> you look at it. It is completely disturbing and completely candid and honest about how disgusting war is and how morally ambiguous the entire exercise and entity is. And I, to this day, and even the other day, just watching it again, thank you for the pleasure of making me revisit all these movies. I love so much, by the way, <laughs> I, I, there's not a more moving film about just the loss of innocence and about, yeah. and about ego and about just the, the, absolutely kind of uh also like the cultural posturing and thinking you're better than other Mm -hmm. folk who are brown people it is just and i don't even think that's the turks i actually think that's the egyptians in the film but it's just (laughs) it is it is so candid um and also so moving and you can totally get the characters and somehow it's miraculously like shows you characters that are real to their time that you don't hate or detest you kind of yeah you're in with them uh it's
0: yeah, you it's accept them with their complexities and their yeah conflicting personality traits for sure.
1: Yeah, and yeah. and it's miraculous on a formal level. You know, we talk about we like to get really in the nitty gritty of it, but just the score, the score. Oh like my people talk goodness!
0: About, like right from talk, the beginning. Right yeah. from the beginning.
1: Like you talk about thief. We talk about thief a lot, of course. I'm the Michael mm-hmm. Mann guy. It's going to happen. Um, but the beautiful incongruity of the hyper-electronic score and this is literally a clash between contemporary views and traditional views. And I think that that is like a, it's like a spotlight. It's like saying, I'm going to unashamedly stare in the face of what the real history is and depict it with as, with as much authenticity as I possibly can, because it is not good enough. It is not good enough for us to just keep purporting this bullshit. And what's really strange is that it had this film in people's minds has like got like these two ways to look at it. It is sort of like a nationalist thing because people can like look at it,
0: but mm-hmm. and I think
1: honestly some of those people are like half watching it. They must have second screened it because I'm like <laughs> it's the most anti war film. It's deeply critical of Australian policy and politics, and it's deeply critical of just like our the entire Australian you know dominant political agenda. And yeah, yeah it's a it's. It's just special.
0: It is. When you talk about anti-war film, I mean, the first thing that came to mind when you said, you know, just how scathing it is and what a damning indictment I thought about has a glory, but again, yeah. that's kind of told in flashback in places and it doesn't really get into the idea of why these people signed up or what, you know, it doesn't go that far back in the, the narrative of how they got there essentially. But you know it's World War One, so you could kind of like, if you want to do a whole day of anti-war, World War One, <laughs> there you go. But um, you know, it is a masterful film. You have Russell Boyd as the cinematographer. It is just a stunning film to look at with your at.
1: boy, with your boy John Searle as like a camera operator.
0: I know. Oh my gosh! Crazy, crazy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's just amazing and that score I think also is kind of a metaphor for how he wants to look at it like taking yes. a modern view of the past like and not romanticizing it because we always do have a tendency to look back and try to you know rose colored glasses everything and actually when I was thinking about the film today actually and reading about the history of Gallipoli and World War One, I, I was just remembering I've told Blake the story but like my mom's uh grandfather from Italy came over from Calabria and then World War 1 broke out he decided like he had just gotten over here that he was going to go back and fight with Italy Um, yeah. even though we wound <laughs> yeah. up on the same side I think Italy <laughs> at the beginning was on the other side and then they you know we were on the same side at that point um you know, because I remember uh, hearing stories from like my great aunts. Yeah, he was so proud, like, I had to go back with Italy and fight the Turks, or, you know, all that <laughs> stuff he said. And it was just kind of nonsense. But he didn't really know why they were going over there. Just, huh. that's my country. I need to fight with them. And so he went and just this idea. And I love that um, it's really honest about it at the beginning of Gallipoli, like, you know, why are we even going there? And, um, yes yeah there was really no point it also i i like the idea of jungle book being read to them and kind of this coming of age question of what do you do do you leave the nest and what do you leave it for and how do you make your way uh the dynamic i read something mel gibson said about the reason he was cast versus um mark lee sorry
1: yeah, Mark Lee. Yeah.
0: Versus Mark Lee um in that role Mark Lee was the um prototypical blonde angelic Australian looking sweet man. he had
1: he yeah <laughs> Mel who is an Irish character. Yes. Um in 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 the film has a li- he, he's family like has that great scene of like, they murdered us. Why are you fighting for them? Frank? Does, his dad's yes. like, they murdered us. In our, we came over yeah. here, you know, the, the convict reality of the Australian colonial experience is like, they murdered us. That's why we came here. You know, like, yes. it's like, we escaped. It is like, why are you fighting for them? I just want to go across the world, dad. I'm not fighting for them. I'm fighting yeah. for me.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And Mel said that the reason he was also cast is he looked more modern versus yes. Lee. And so the yes. nice contrast of past and present Australia. And I thought mm-hmm. that was an interesting way to look at it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, no. It, it only gets better. Like that's the yep. thing is with Gallipoli, it only gets better. It, it's, it's ageless because. It's so fearless, you know. Sorry about the pun, because we might actually get to the film fearless, but it's so fearless in his <laughs> filmmaking and its storytelling that he's he's just like, I'm gonna make this, I'm gonna be uncompromised, and I'm gonna be unwavering. And this is, you know, and that's that's why we can go back to it and consume it and revisit it. And I find that with all of his films, I'm just like, oh my God, he can he truly, um, he truly gets to a place with this film that I don't think many filmmakers have ever gotten to with any war film, you know the best war films of all time um, in my mind, you know, they, they have room for contemplation and, you know, yeah. they have, they have room for doubt. And I think when you don't doubt it, it just becomes rara. It's an adventure film. it stops mm-hmm. being a war film. Um, yeah. But this film is just the shadow of doubt is cast through every character and every decision and every conflict. It's just, it's just the perfect canvas for drama. And it's, it's, it's so spectacular. And like, even the, even silly things that I, I just love is, like, there's that great moment where all the guys are, like, stripping off and going for a swim in the mm-hmm. Medi- what is the Mediterranean. And, like, they put in a pot in someone's hat that if you're the person who gets shot or shelled while you're swimming, you win the pot. I and know. I'm like, that is such... Australian, like that's some Australian shit, right <laughs> That's <some> real. Like, <laughs> like betting to to see which one of you is gonna get shelled, and like, yeah, woohoo, I got the money. <laughs> He's bleeding out. <laughs> it's like, it's like that's 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 those guys. They were having a punt. They were betting on you know mm-hmm. their lives. They were talking nonsense. They were not sophisticated in any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, or they're so aware. young. Yeah,
0: they're
1: so young and dumb, and it's just. Really, yeah. with stupid with two o's as i like to say they were just stupid they had no idea what they were mm-hmm. doing and 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 not
0: at all no
1: nope. and yeah they were just instruments but yeah it's special jen i'm thankful it really is to talk about it.
0: and the fact that it came out when it did right after um this country started to question its role in vietnam with all of the films that started to hit in the mid to late uh 70s so i think you know and it carried all the way through up to oliver stone and platoon which he'd been working on and writing since he got back from vietnam as a, an angry response to john wayne's green berets he saw that and was so pissed <laughs> off he was like that's not the war i just thought." <laughs> no, and and, uh, and, and yeah. uh,
1: australia's uh, australia's vietnam experience is all in this too it's yeah. like it's you know because the the mythical nature of gallipoli and anzac really probably enlisted many more volunteers um for vietnam for vietnam fighting in australia because we did have um conscription and then it, and then there was a referendum to take that away um mm-hmm. for military service at the time and so i think that you know this is this is a film being made about that sentiment is like we need to question these myths because otherwise we just blindly follow this
0: yes you know
1: this you know whatever the dominant method, uh, history is that is going around that people are purporting, uh, you know, the dominant rhetoric. Um, so no, it's, it's, it's a really special movie it, it and it looks spectacular and it kind of, and it's, yeah, it's sensational.
0: Yeah. Speaking of looking spectacular witness always knocks Ugh. me out. That's our next film. We're going to jump into, um, a masterful film. It stars kelly mcgillis harrison ford as we discussed earlier lucas haas vigo mortensen in in his first role he kind of credits and
1: with the ugliest and worst Viggo Mortensen haircut I think of all time but uh very good very good performance yeah
0: yeah you got Danny Glover too playing like you know a villainous role which is crazy although you know this was an era when he did kind of play some some darker roles like in uh, Color Purple there there's some stuff there but um it's a brilliant movie i love uh the idea i read recently that peter weir looked uh, along with uh john seal at um, vermeer paintings mm. uh to make sure that it kind of had that dutch softer look especially in the scene when um harrison ford who is playing a, a police officer who is trying to protect a young witness and his mother so he moves in with them on the amish um country farm that they live on in Pennsylvania and kind of just takes care of them because there's some sort of thing going on with bad police officers and doesn't know who to trust. But after he gets shot and he's being taken care of, some of the scenes that we see were pulled right from these classic Dutch paintings. And you can kind of see the influence. It's a stunning movie it's very romantic when i bring up the film there's always inevitably one or two people usually women who will reply (laughs) and tell me it has one of the most you know swoony kisses in uh, film essentially or contemporary or 80s movies like one of the biggest uh, romantic movie moments you know there are some great scenes. Like they actually did build a barn. I read yeah. like you know they literally built a barn. That's crazy. I mean they did use a crane and some stuff off, <laughs> up, you know, in order to do it a little bit faster. But I, I love that it's such a special film to use uh, Blake's phrase for the day, and it, it's a good one. Yeah,
1: uh, I I love this movie so much. Um, mm-hmm. and it has the horniest. Line maybe ever in a movie, which is tomorrow I'll take those pants out for you. (laughs)
0: Like
1: where where Rachel Lap Kelly McGillis is talking to Harrison Ford's John Book, and he's wearing very tight pants, and he goes, "That would be great." And it is so so, like the the sexual tension. Like people talk about like so much
0: sexual tension in this movie. People talk about Kelly McGillis
1: and Top Gun, and it's like Mm -mm. Tom Cruise does not know what to do with this woman. No, Harrison Ford, on the other hand, there is something that is yep. electric he about that. He has thought
0: about it. Yes. <laughs> Not like Tom Cruise. Never... is kind of like taken aback. You know, like, you know, yeah. I mean, he's ready. Questions. Yeah. He's, he's Harrison ready. Harrison Ford has like, you know, he is playing three dimensional chess when it comes to listen, with the foreplay in l- this movie. L- listen,
1: when yeah. you're 17 and you see Bull Durham for the first time, as I was, you're like, you really. Whatever aspirations you have to think that you could handle Susan surrounding you're like, no, no that's not. Good. But 20 years later, I'm like, you know what, Coach, put me.
0: In. I'm, <laughs> I'm ready.
1: I re- I think I can handle it. But no, the Harrison Ford's John Book. Also, I was watching it with a family friend, and I I rewound the scene. I'm like, this is the horniest. This is the horniest line ever said in a movie. I, I like it's my favorite. And we watched it, and just before that line she hands Harrison Ford like a lemonade or something like that and he drinks it and the 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 lemonade drips down his
0: <laughs> adam's
1: apple and she goes no, no no I actually think you're missing something <laughs> she's like from a woman's perspective that is the horniest thing in this movie is the, him yeah. drinking and the, and it's so outside of the horniness of course because that's I think it's actually essential <laughs> to the movie that there is a there is some
0: Palpable. electricity that has yeah. happened
1: between those two and that and that kind of changes the entire dynamic of what it is because ultimately he wants to be there as like a guard and to protect them but that connection is so fantastic um i just truly think that this movie has absolutely everything it's like a dynamic uh it, it, it's a beautiful painterly the mirror as you were talking about um in so much of like the original conception of it it's this great again we're talking about clashes between Modernity and 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 mm-hmm. and the past or glamorizing the past and the great sort of quandary that is Amish people who are like
0: yeah you know, so
1: hyper progressive again the score works a, a treat for that it, it it has this lack of this phenomenal distrust that's happening with you know John and his partner Carter yeah, yeah with institutions everywhere and it's so great, but it also has this ability of like stylized you know crime thriller and hypertension and then this sort of glorious you know I- experience all the best aspects of Amish experience and then these great you know the car radio turns on and they're wonderful dancing scene and it's just yeah. so spectacular but then when you get um Joseph Sommer who plays Schaefer and then you get Danny Glover McVee, when you see those guys walking down the road yes uh, I
0: actually tweeted that it looks like yeah, a horror the- movie it's yes. a
1: horror movie. It's it's yes, it's like it, rem- it reminded me of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when the 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 Mansonoids are all walking up Celio Drive. I'm like mm-hmm. that's a fucking horror scene. And so I just think it has absolutely everything. It has no right to work um from like a traditional scripting perspective.
0: Yeah.
1: But again, part of this kind of thing is anchoring the character, putting them there, having an overall like a uh, an overarching sort of thematic query that's happening and having all these staged things, it shouldn't work yet. It works. And it's so romantic and it's so heartfelt and it's so great. And I, the little bit of tidbit trivia is that like, uh, Ryan Johnson, who's obviously out in the news right now, promoting glass onion a great filmmaker. He said like when he was making looper, you know, he watched witness like a hundred thousand mm-hmm. times. He's like, I watched witness because there's a whole farm sequence in that film. um, actually the best Terminator movie. That's not a Terminator movie in case you wanted to check it out. Uh, but it's uh, Witness just has something that is so special and so well-performed and is so, it, it is both deeply romantic and is deeply realistic about the world and about people's chances. And there's no that. And there's just such a fatalism about the whole romantic relationship between Rachel Lapp and John book that I can't get yeah. over. Like I can't, Believe that he leaves. I'm so, I'm like Lucas Haas. I'm like devastated that he leaves. I just can't by the end of the film. I can't believe it every single time. And it's tense, it's intense. And Harrison Ford, like this was a time, you know, where Harrison Ford and he does it again with Mosquito Coast with Peter Weir. It's just one of his most phenomenal top to bottom performances where he's not in an existing IP universe. He's in a real world that is yeah. tangible, that have decisions that are meaningful. And I just, I am like, this is one of, I think it might be one of my like top 10 movies of all time. Like, uh, and that's, and that's truly saying something. I, I think it's, if you've never seen Witness, you just have, you, you won't believe how good it is. And if you have seen Witness, it's better than you remember
0: it is and i love this era for harrison ford because he was trying things and he was acting with the capital a and it was nice to see like he's in this he's in mosquito coast as you mentioned he's also in frantic the roman polanski which i think is a brilliant movie and he's so great in working girl my goodness presumed innocence
1: around this time too
0: yeah yeah i think that was 90 uh, Working Girl, of course, also stars um, Melanie Griffith, who was in her own version of Witness, you know, Stranger Among Us kind of thing yes. with the uh, Hasidic Jew. Uh, population of New York City, I believe. She plays a police officer. It's not a great film. It's not Witness, but it is entertaining. <laughs> also in Working Girl, uh, Harrison Ford is the opposite Sigourney Weaver, who was in You're Living Dangerously. So it all kind of circles back to Weir is what we're saying. Yes. But um, you mentioned Ryan Johnson, Akira Kurosawa. This is actually one of his favorite films of all time. He was asked for his favorite movies and Witness was one of the first ones he mentioned which I always loved. I thought, um, you know, it is such a classical can, can story. You,
1: can you imagine being like an Aussie kid making movies in the 70s and then you're like in the 80s, so he's making movies for a little over a decade now. And yeah. Akira Kurosawa is <laughs> like, like, that's, that's my favorite. <laughs> You'd be like, okay, I'm done. I know yeah. why you retired. He's like, look, I'm done. It's fine. Like, I did it.
0: Yeah.
1: Guys, I did it. I don't need to make any other stuff.
0: Yeah. A couple other things I love about the film is um, the fact that Lucas Haas is believed right away like he uh is a little boy at the police station Mm. and he doesn't see in the mug shots the people that he saw doing the killing at the um train station and it's only when he sees the picture of danny glover in the um like a place of honor at the police station that he kind of gestures or begins to uh to harrison ford and harrison ford takes him at his word right away and i always loved that because it's a question of Believing a witness and um just shows you that's the seen. goodness. Yeah, it's very yeah, that's powerful.
1: Because it starts to adopt his gaze, right? So he's looking yes. around the room and it takes mm-hmm. this. It doesn't have any of the deliberate structure of all of the other scenes. It kind of is very languid and yeah, it, takes peering a while. And, it mm-hmm. and it's it's got that kind of Spielberg uh like Built. what has become sort of Spielbergian, which is like drop the camera down to the kid's
0: mm-hmm.
1: height and go through the room and scan the room. And he's got this beautiful, like delicate kind of like wonder looking around and awe. And then when he sees it, it's like, and he starts shaking, you can see book, you know, having a conversation he doesn't care about. And then he catches him and he sees the entire he behavior changes. His aura. He's just like, he just puts the phone. He just stops talking. I just love the wordless.
0: Yes. You're a cinema, Recognition. He, he just, mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: He just sees it. Walks over and. And then he looks over and he looks at him and he looks over He looks and he's like, puts his arm around him and then that's it. Like, that's it. That's all you need to know. It's like this kid, why would, again, you know, qui bono, we've talked about mafia movies before who benefits, like what's the benefit of this kid lying? He's a sweet outsider. He has no, no, no reason to do that. And when he sees him, he's like, that's it. And then he starts putting the pieces together. And I think that that's terrific. It's so terrific.
0: Yeah. One of the things I love about We Are So Much, and we see it in Truman Show, and I, I mentioned that on Twitter as well when I was watching, is he is unafraid to let big things play out without dialogue. Yes. He loves... um Uh, eye contact which i'm a big person who loves to talk about eyes (laughs) a lot of my readers are like are you talking about men's eyes again like when i write about actors too much uh, how can't
1: you harrison ford drinks a lemonade and it's the you know come on guys let jen talk about the eyes for god's sake this is why we're here
0: i know and uh that's that's so good about we're but You brought up the romance of it all. And Mm. um, I just also love that we see things play out slowly and methodically between them, like where their gazes fall or when um, I believe she adjusts the collar on his shirt or she sort of brushes near him or stands behind him or just the level of heat. Like we don't need them to say anything. You can just feel it. It's palpable. Kind of reminds me a little bit of out of sight. Uh, yes. Between those two. Like, we don't need a big speech of him to say, Hey, I dig you. It's, it kind of goes back to a movie that Blake and I love a lot, Last the Mohicans. I'm looking at you, honestly, honestly. And that's, that's what's happening in this movie. That,
1: yeah, that's out of sight. The only thing that could improve it is a hand sponge bath. Like, that's like, it can't be improved <laughs> by many movies could do with a hand sponge bath, but it's like, but that entire scene, right? She's there. Yeah, yeah. She turns around, she feels like she's being watched. She turns around, she sees him. Mm-hmm. she stands in her like sexual power and just looks at him like, this is me. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. this is the goods. And he's the <laughs> one who wilts uh, temporarily there. Cause it's like, Oh God. Like, it's like, she's, 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 she means business basically. And, and I
0: love his response about that the next day. Like if, yeah, yeah if we would have made love, I wouldn't be able to leave. Or I, yes. I, like he just knows like he wouldn't have left. And, uh, yeah. I, I love that it. they're grown up about it. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. yes, I'm sexually attracted to you, but I'm not going to do something or. Yeah.
1: I, don't, I can't live this life. Yep. And there's a, there's a timer going down that he's got to go. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so perfect is that like the movie tells you like, he's got to go yep. right from the start. It's got to go. He's tries he to go. Fit tries to here. drive away. He doesn't yeah. fit. Um, and yeah, it's oh, this movie, is so good. Like I could watch it again. It's one yep. of those ones that's it's it's one of those ones that's really hard um to talk about because precisely the point that you want to go. And I do have to mention um who's usually just like deployed as a henchman in, in Die Hard, for example, um Alexander Godunov. And I didn't realize he was like a ballet dancer.
0: Oh wow. I didn't know I that did, either.
1: Yeah, he was in like the ball ballet. I learned that. Like, I like I was watching with a friend who's like, "Oh, he's a ballet dancer in the ballet." And I'm like, "What?"
0: And because <laughs> Get out she of had
1: she had a mad man crush on him. She's like, "Look, Harrison Ford, Alexander, good enough. Oh my goodness!" And I was just like, <laughs> what, do, "What do you mean?" Like was he's it the math? bad guy from <laughs> No, it was my friend oh, Robert. Oh. She's so good, okay. uh, but she's just like she's like um, she's like, "Oh yeah, ball <laughs> ballet. Look at those pins." I'm like, "Man, okay." And I looked it up, and it's true. He's a ballet dancer. So. You know, and and then he comes, you know that how how devastating that moment is when books driving his car away, and and there's Daniel walking down the street to go and get Rachel and live that yeah. life, and it's just oh man, achingly sad. Such a mm-hmm. terrifically made movie. It, it, it's it's a like yeah again in a in a, a genre movie that we've seen and probably pissed taken in like King's Kingpin or whatever it was called. You know, like it's this movie just rules. So, so hard. So, so hard.
0: Yes, exactly. Well, we should move to our next one. The Truman Show has more nonverbal stuff going on. It also has (laughs) improvisation. I love that. Uh, Speaking of nonverbal, I read that um, Ace Ventura was a film that Peter Weir saw, and he saw something (laughs) in Jim Carrey. He just thought this guy has a chaplain-esque quality. And uh, he wanted to explore that, which which I love very much. I guess Brian De Palma was going to be the person to direct. Truman Show had been kicked around a few other people. Brian Singer wanted to do it, but he wasn't really taken as seriously as like De Palma was. And then it went to Peter Weir, and Weir's like, "Nope, I want Ace Ventura, Pet Detective." <laughs> yes,
1: it's it's so good because it's now become like a trope of like you get a comedian. Who's yeah. like hilariously funny and does like this sort of absurdist comedies and you put them into a drama and they can really sing and obviously people dead have a poets. short memory, yeah. yeah. People have a short memory, not you, but people who have a short memory are like, oh, this is you know it doesn't happen so often, da da da. But you're right, dead poets. You're right with like Peter Sellers being yeah. there. You know, you're there's all there's a long history of comedic actors who can do incredible dramatic turns, but Carrie has this can't stop looking at him thing I don't know it's just a magnetism that you Mm -hmm. and that is so required at the center of this because you he has an unpredictability too and I think that that's what makes him so perfect is because when you're watching it you're expecting Jim Carrey but he's just a regular guy and like he also is a guy who thinks he's way funnier than he is and people have laughed at his jokes and so he's kind of emboldened to do that but he's not that funny and he says kind of lame jokes and it just works to the entire artifice that he manufactures And I, yeah, the Truman Show is a massive, like that, talk about viral stuff. Like I remember like just posting something about the Truman Show a while back because I was in the depths of doing what I'm doing for, um, podcast from Commander and I was watching weird films again and it was Mm -hmm. only a few months ago. And I remember just like one tweet of like, I just can't get over how good this movie is or something like that. And like, I had like hundreds of retweets and like nearly a thousand responses, like uh, both likes and comments and people just went berserk. And I was just like, Oh. I don't realize. Mm-hmm. You, I don't have much of a concept of how much this movie means to people. Uh, like, I monster
0: mean, hit, yeah,
1: mon- monster and hit, and
0: cultural touchstone. Like, it's a psychiatric diagnosis now. Yeah,
1: yeah, yes, and also so prescient because yes. it, like, it, it was. It was like all of the manufacturing of reality. Mm -hmm. to create reality television. It's just like, that's the text. It's not subtext in this film. It's text. Mm -hmm. And like now people are realizing, oh, it's reality television, maybe like a little bit played up, artificial, (laughs) dramatized. Do they give them scenarios to make? Yes. Yes. They've been doing it since the beginning. It's like, you know, this is 1998, like really before there are any huge reality TV show hits. And now for the last 20 years, like that's the increasing thing that every country produces a reality show. To get that quota up because it's easier to produce; they're cheaper to produce than like dramatic or comedic things. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's that's what it is. And i i I think it's. I mean, everyone in this movie is fantastic. You know, obviously Laura Linney is fantastic. Natasha yes. Macalone with like no words, um, and Noah Harris. Emmerich. I Noah love Emmerich. too yeah he's so good oh my Always goodness yeah and it's just I, I just think it gets better and better and better because mm-hmm. again it has that miraculous quality he was right on time or in fact ahead of time um with some of this stuff and that's why I sort of conversely look back at like Gallipoli and go a lot of the culture wars conversation or like this idea of like honestly appraising the history of Australia was like in the biggest film in the country in 81 and it's now 2022. And I'm like, didn't you guys watch Gallipoli? Didn't we have this conversation? (laughs) Um, And, and I feel like that with the Truman show, I think it's just utterly spellbinding because of all those reasons. And then again, Jim Carrey, although he does eternal sunshine and although he does man on the moon, this is, the biggest movie star performance of his entire career. And he just colossally knocks it out of the park. I know. It's like exultant. Like the end of this movie is devastating. so
0: devastating. Yep.
1: So devastating. So powerful. Yeah. And it's I mean, you can't just help but I I'm getting I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about the ending. Um yeah. it's incredible. And really incredible
0: it is and to bring it back to um my film class again with daryl for contemporary cinema acting unit one of the students actually chose truman show and chose the a scene at the end of carrie in the boat making his escape from Um, this island or this fake island that he thinks he lives on. He's the star of a reality show for people who haven't seen it in a long time and doesn't realize he is. Everyone around him is actors. Everything else is artificial but he is real is kind of the conceit and as he's venturing in this boat to get out um, you see everything anger denial acceptance bargaining you see it all sort of play off of him and from behind a lot of it somebody was bringing up um that you really don't see his face so it's kind of all in his shoulder blades and how he carries himself and what he's doing also the music by Philip Glass again you have Ugh. incredible music going through all of these films gorgeous cinematography I also like that you kept using the word miraculous i mean this is kind of a christian parable you have yes. christo as uh the creator essentially <laughs> which is um ed harris's character you have laurel he's got big steve
1: jobs who... energy as well huge save jobs energy yes yes
0: all the and... outfits
1: and all that
0: yeah. Laura Linney is playing Meredith, which sounds like Mary. Natasha McElhone has kind of this, you know, in the garden with Eve, sort of yeah. she's tempting him. There's a lot of this stuff sort of running through it, like the, the origin or the creation, uh, the myth of the universe or what we do. It also raises a lot of questions about, um, utopias and how, uh, we take, Sustenance or catharsis in art, and what is that doing to us, possibly? Or um, are we just consuming things emptily? It also—I mean, we brought up reality TV, but it sort of foreshadows this whole social media thing of people on on like the Instagram model or the influencer (laughs) thing, where you're trying to make your life look so perfect, and uh, it—it's really not. I just—I think Linny is. Remarkable. She's one of my favorite actresses, and I when love she that. gets
1: scared, when she gets yes! scared in that Ooh. scene, that's that's yeah, that's one of my best. Truly,
0: it really is. And just her ability to kind of, like, detach from reality. And remember, I am an actress, so I have to do commercial right now. Like, <laughs> and she just slides into uh, commercial <laughs> mode. And the way she holds her body or poses, which was taken from old catalogs. I mean, there's so much going on with this one. Yeah, So
1: much. And it's also the little touches that I now find so sensational is, like, went before Truman gets on the boat and the whole town is all like standing still. Yes. Just like standing there, like waiting for him. Uh That's that that stuff is just like, that's the stuff that's like, Oh, that's like, yeah, that's what's been hiding underneath this whole thing. When you start to see all the layers of how those things, and it becomes like a huge film about making films as well. So yeah. First
0: positions. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I also love, I just love little details that are just so cute, which is like, they go, oh, you know, the light falls down and Nellie clobbers Truman, and then like he walks into town and they're like, hey, did you hear about the plane? <laughs> yeah, whose parts are co-? like they just the great like covering up blunders mm-hmm. storylines in the film are so cute as well. And, but no, it's 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 really really you know. Um, the amount of thought that went into every element of it, I think that that's what Peter Weir does so great. It's like, it's not about just setting the scene. It's then going, if we've established this reality, what are all the what are all the necessary components for us to maintain yes. the reality? Mm-hmm. And so then you have to go, he's just, he, he seemingly end, endlessly scrutinizes those elements and goes, what has to happen at these things? And what in the world do we have to build out to make sure that we are still staying true to what we're actually trying to achieve? And so in all those different elements, I think that that's great. Uh, about how you in every single scene it's as rich and detailed or as like has as many holes as it needs to and it's like kind of where truman is in the story and so everything is effortless and perfect and then all it takes is that one crack it's like the light at the beginning that's like one crack um in the whole world and it's like okay there's a crack and Mm -hmm. that 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 literally he's being illuminated or nearly because he's getting nearly gets murdered by a light, but like he's like illuminated from that whole yeah the, the the whole break in in this reality and so uh yeah i i think it's it's really great and i think you know i had this huge thing and people uh, i don't know whether it was like a tension it was a massive hit and there was a bit of a tension of like oh it's this comedic actor trying to go serious and da 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 and there's a lot of discourse it's like oh i like mm-hmm. him when he's in earlier films more absurdist i like him here i like him there. whatever but i think that what gets missed is that it's just incredibly powerful, remains so. Every time there's an anniversary, every time there's some, it gets mentioned, people are there. And so uh, it's definitely yeah. one of those canon movies that people, I think, of our generation and younger are like, it's really important to them. Like, it's hugely important. And I think that that's, that's what's great um, yeah. about Truman
0: brilliantly written by andrew nickel it is a tour de force performance by jim carrey for sure there was kind of a little run of these sort of movies as we approached y2k um essentially there was ed tv which sucked there was pleasantville which is actually a very good film i revisited that one um, pleasantville is excellent Yeah, I actually programmed and hosted that um, in the community like years ago. I love Pleasantville. I think it's a beautiful film, but it's a very different one uh, than this movie is. Uh, They're also sort of investigating uh, Capra-esque, you know, what we're doing with Artifice. And I think that's important. But going back into Weir and his filmography, I feel like this has maybe more in common with something like the Cars That Ain't Paris than you would yes. guess, essentially. Yes. It's, it's raising questions about a weird society. And you were saying, uh, you know, what are the rules of this society <laughs> or the logic of something that batshit, essentially, or that fake and these are questions that have kind of been running throughout his movies. Um, you know, the idea of utopia or escaping that in *Mosquito Coast*, and just these questions of society. And it all comes to head here in *Truman Show*. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's it. It also has that great thing of the cost of the truth. Yes. You know, like it's like, yes. it's like what are the lies <laughs> you're willing to tell yourself? Because yeah. also, Truman has had to maintain the lie.
0: Mm-hmm. and
1: his life has been so great and they've been obviously satiating him but there's a point where he's like on the fence and i think that that's the great turmoil and conflict in the movie as well Is like do i maintain the lie do i stop asking questions and just live my life and everything's yeah. good and i have a good job and or not yeah and what what are the what are the consequences of that
0: that's yes. what's brilliant it's kind of the primary question we all ask, like, you know, am I staying in this marriage for the right reasons or what yeah. am I sacrificing or this job that I'm working that I don't really like or, you know, should I move? Should I do anything? And these are kind of core questions. Of course, they're they're heightened to an extreme <laughs> extent here in Truman Show. But yeah, they're kind of the basis, uh, the cornerstone, again, with that great humanism that we're talking about with Weir. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I know those are the ones we had time for today, but before I let you go, do you have any other favors? Obviously, Master and Commander, we're gonna yeah. to learn more about that, you're gonna want to tune in to Podcaster <laughs> and Commander. Um, do you wanna tell us more about that and any other films you recommend people should seek out?
1: Yes, absolutely. So on the 7th of January, the first episode of Podcaster and Commander is gonna come out a little week after. New Year's because the Heat 2 book club concludes on the third. So I'm giving a couple of days in between those two series to give a a bit of a breath. But um, yeah, I love Master and Commander. I think it's a genuine, like a genuine classic for so many reasons for its vignette storytelling style, for its tone, for its allegorical uh, moments, for its action, for its fraternity, Mm -hmm. um, for its humor, for everything. I, I, I think it's a completely out of time special film told with a really contemporary style uh that that sort of maintains the ethos of i think what big classic epics aspire to from like a mainstream perspective so i can't wait to dive into that more and i truly um i I truly can't wait for people to hear what, what we talk about with some of those great guests but i think the mosquito coast is deeply underrated it's phenomenal piece of filmmaking um I mean, we didn't even talk about Dead Poets, which I adore. I love Robin mm-hmm. Williams so much. And that Me is too. so spectacular. Year of Living Dangerously. it, you oh, know, um, brilliant. It um, It is a brilliant film. And I think that, you know, if you scrutinize it with sort of completely um, anchored and I think probably stuck feet as far as like contemporary gaze and looked at it and tried to scrutinize and go, oh, I don't really like Mel Gibson. And oh, I don't know about this performance from Linda Hunt, et cetera. I think you're kind of denying yourself uh, yeah. A real experience, a real, a real mm-hmm. incredible. It's, it's, um, got, it's written by, and this is someone who, not, I, I would, don't think that everyone would be completely, um, familiar with him necessarily outside of Australia. But David Williamson wrote the screenplay, and David Williamson is an amazing playwright in Australia, and so he co-wrote the screenplay with Weir. Um, about the you know the President Sukarno rule of Indonesia, and it was a very strange time. And Australia is really a massive Western country in Asia, and so there, there, there is a natural conflict, um, with sort of ideological conflict that is between the countries. And so it's a really cool thing to see, like a sort of an examination of a of, a, of a, one of our immediate neighbors through again outsiders and insiders, fish out of water. Um, it, so I I love that movie. It is sweeping. It is epic. It is great culture clash it's got so much value still and it i I think it kind of at the time i think it had a bit of a splash it was a big star power movie and had all that sort of stuff and an oscar nominated performance but it has just because of streaming and stuff it's kind of disappeared off the radar terrific um last wave is one of the best australian films ever made Mm
0: -hmm. as
1: far as i'm concerned and very special and if you haven't seen it it is so much about what is subterranean and what is being hidden in plain sight in Australian history? And I think it's the film that deals with it most directly. And it, you know, sort of talks about, you know, nature as this leveling force eventually. Um, uh, And it. Richard Chamberlain does a great performance. Dave Goldpool in it. It's, yeah, it's really great. And I think if you're listening to Jan, you've probably got a Criterion channel subscription. Hopefully. Um, so you could... Um, so you, I, you would find, you would find that very easily. And I, I think they did a whole run of Weir's, um, entire back catalog on there. So there there's probably a couple on there, um, like Picking a Hanging Rock and Last Wave specifically, but man, one of my favorite films and yeah, he's, he's really special. The way back, his last film underrated, got a great Saoirse Ronan performance in it. Um, has Ed Harris, has Colin Farrell, really great film. Um, but yeah, he's even Peter Weir's not best amazing Top tier impossible to qualify one to five films. Like there is so much value in his entire resume. So I just strongly recommend going back and checking it out. And um a friend of ours, uh, Ben David Gabinsky says you can either watch, you know, seven seasons of lost or just go and watch 90 minutes of fearless and you kind of get the gist. <laughs> uh and so yeah, if you want to save some time also, I, I do recommend Fearless, um, especially because Jeff Bridges yes. was so adorable hugging um Peter Weir when he gave him his Oscar. It was so nice. A great film.
0: It is a brilliant movie. Well Blake, I want to thank you so much for doing this and for sharing your perspective on Weir and what he means to Australian filmmaking and Australia and it's always just such a joy to talk movies with you and always thank fun. you again. Yes.
1: Always fun. We Jen and I never have enough time because we sit and we just natter on for like 20 minutes catching up and checking in <laughs> on each other yes. and talking nonsense so uh, it's always a pleasure. I've loved this season so far. Some all-timer episodes again from some of our amazing friends and your guests. And uh, yeah, it's been so great. Thank you, Jen. And I can't wait for next year when we do something wildly different and work together on something and something really aspirational. So I'm so looking forward to Midnight Run Through. And thank you for chatting to me about We Are You Know Me. As soon as I um, have a topic that I want to talk about, I'll natter on it f- for too long. Um, <laughs> so Anytime, I'm very th- you're welcome I'm I'm very thankful to talk about Peter Weir because, yeah, if 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 I do one thing in any of my projects and it's to make people revisit great films and ha- yes. have a great experience, that's that's a huge win for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, you'll have to come back. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Season four.
0: Yes. Can you believe Season that? Season four. I'll be <laughs> back. I pro-
1: I, prom- I promise I'll be back. You you, you name the day, I'll be there.
0: Will do. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and Filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.